when push comes to shove in the sort of day-to-day of running your company and growing your company, and I, I'm guessing you guys are going to agree, those tough situations, the skill set doesn't matter. Yeah. It's the trust in the relationship. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Today, Amanda Hasser joins us on Skimmed from the Couch. Amanda is the CEO and co-founder of Food52, an online hub of content and commerce for cooking and home enthusiasts. Since it started in 2009, Food52 now reaches over 15 million people each month. Before starting her own business, Amanda was a writer and editor at the New York Times for over a decade. She has authored multiple best-selling cookbooks, and she's also played herself in a Nora Ephron movie. That is so cool. We'll get into all of this. Amanda, welcome to Skim from the Couch. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to talk to you. So first, let's just jump into it. Can you just skim your resume for us? Sure. You ready for a wild ride? Yeah. (laughs) So after college, I moved first to Germany, where I worked in a bakery. Then I moved to Switzerland. I also worked in a bakery. Then I went to Rome, and then I moved to France, and then I moved back to Italy, and then I moved back to France, working um, as essentially an apprentice in various you know, restaurants and bakeries, and then landed in France at La Varenne, which was a cooking school that was very popular in the 80s and 90s in Paris. They had moved out to Burgundy, and I was the assistant to the owner of the school. And I got was able to work for her while also getting my cooking degree. I also got exposed to the world of cookbook writing, and that's really when I decided I was going to make a leap into writing. And I wrote my first book actually about her gardener, who was this kind of cranky old guy who took care of the garden. And from there, I wrote. I moved home to write the book, started doing some freelancing, which I was not very good at. And then I got hired at the New York Times. And then I was like very stable for, you know, a decade. Stable yet ultimately unhappy, probably because I wasn't doing as many new things as I wanted to, and left there to start a company that had nothing to do with food. I did a startup that was much more about kind of tracking your life online. I call it my startup grad school because I spent a year working on that and spent a lot of my own money, but not anyone else's, which was a kind of a good thing because I sort of got immersed into this world, got the startup bug without doing a lot of damage. And then Meryl, my co-founder, and I decided to start Food52. And now it's another decade, and here we are. That was a great skim. The first half of your story is literally my, like, Nora Ephron, Diane Lane, eat, pray, love fantasy. (laughs) But where did your initial love and interest in food and cooking come from? It came from home and growing up. And, you know, I came from a very middle-class, lower-to-middle-class background. And Where did you grow up? In Pennsylvania. I mentioned that piece because I think that was that very much informed the way my family thought about cooking, which was, you know, it was very practical terms. My grandmother and my mother always canning and making their own jam. My mom made bread. They cooked seasonally way before it was fashionable to do so. And they did that because A, things tasted better, yes, but also because they were available then and they were going to be less expensive and it was sort of more economical to, you know, grow tomatoes in your backyard than to have to buy them. Talk to us about your dad and his business. 
my dad had worked at a bunch of car dealerships, first selling cars, then as a manager. And when I was three, he decided to kind of break, strike out on his own and buy a dealership. We were at the time living in Bucks County. He uh, had the option to buy a dealership in Princeton, New Jersey, or Scranton, Pennsylvania. He chose Scranton, which at that time <laughs> in the 70s was like not really the hot place to be. Um, so they leveraged like, you know, all their savings to, you know, to basically take out loans from the bank to buy this business. And then off off he went. Growing up around that environment with my dad having kind of risked everything to make a business work and then his just his drive to to make it happen is very much ingrained in me, and I didn't realize it until much later in my life. Growing up, when you thought about what did you want to do with your life, what did you think? Actually, this, I think, actually does have a, a connection to my dad again. I think when I was about 12 or 13, the, you know, the business started doing better, and you know, and we traveled. I fell in love with the idea of traveling, and because my family did like food, eating out was like a big thing and a big treat and a big focus for us. And so, <laughs> really, my plan for my career was like, I wanted a job at a large corporation where I can like travel and eat well. Um, I mean, I'm fully in support of that. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it wasn't a very like you know. I, I did didn't, too. Did not have a deep complex strategy. It was really about like what kind of lifestyle did I I want and what seemed interesting and exotic. I wanted to have the opportunity to see other parts of the world. When you were graduating college, mm -hmm. what was the plan? Because you talked about leaving and going to Europe. But when you graduated, was that what you thought you were going to do? So <laughs> did not intend this, but I feel like everything is kind of coming back to my dad. So my dad died when I was in college. I mean, losing a parent anytime is, is devastating. And it really kind of threw me into a tailspin. When I started kind of coming out of that <laughs> tailspin, I, I was on a track to actually you know, work, go and work in corporate America. I had, you know, studied finance and economics and I, it just filled me with dread. The idea of like buying a, some kind of blue suit to go on interviews at companies that I hadn't really hadn't heard of. So that actually really drove me to find what I was interested in. And food was something that I was really drawn to at the time and I didn't know where it would take me. So I just dove in. I started working in restaurants, a restaurant and bakery when I was in college. And I took a food history course. I, I could feel that I was on a path that felt more genuine and true to me, but I wasn't sure exactly what to do with it. So I just kind of, I followed my instincts. You know, a lot of people were saying, you know, you should go to Europe and cook there. That will be really enlightening. And I figured out a plan to make that work. Did you speak the languages? No, I had studied French and German, so I could get You could by. get by. I could get by. Yeah. But I mean, I lived in France for two years, and it's embarrassing how poor my French skills are. I just am not a language person. Can you I, say yeah. fruits? Barely. <laughs> yeah, then you're fine. Yeah, well, exactly right. Yeah, I got the important stuff yeah. down, but I'm, a, you know, kind of a survivalist, so I figured it out. When you were in that period of life, kind of going from country to country and, and getting exposure to the culinary world, at what moment did you realize, you know what, I'm not going to pursue the chef route. I'm working and I see that there's an opportunity to actually write. Walk us through where your head was at that you started to see a different path emerge. It wasn't that I hadn't considered writing. I just, because I had never written in my life and in fact didn't really enjoy English class and, and hadn't read that much, I just couldn't see a, a clear path from A to B. So cooking and immersing myself in that experience seemed like the first step. I don't think I ever saw myself as becoming a chef, but I was really drawn to bread baking. And Me too. Yeah? 
No, I mean, I just oh. like bread. Oh, I enjoy <laughs> bread eating. <laughs> I'm sorry. You said bread, and I was like, yes, whatever you're saying, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really did consider that for a while, but I didn't know what I was doing. I, I would love to give you a really crisp answer. You know, obviously, in retrospect, it all seems very linear to me. Like, oh, I went to this, and then, of course, well, but I, I just followed my instincts, I, you know? I think that's the point. Yeah. All of us go through that. And what we like to talk about is exactly what you said, which is looking back, it's all linear. But when you're in that, especially when you graduate and you're in your 20s and you're like, I have this instinct, what do I do with it? It's sometimes hard to remember that you didn't have a clue. Yeah. I mean, I do have an inability to like do something that I don't believe in. And I think that helped (laughs) because, you know, I'm willing to take risks for things that I'm excited and interested and believe in, but I'm not sort of willing to just do something because I think I'm supposed to be doing this thing. One of the things we've heard from our audience is how do you define what feels like a gut feeling? When you have that gut instinct, how do you describe that? It is a very sort of visceral feeling and often I, it starts kind of ramping up my impatience, which is this other thing that I'm often guided by. It tells me like, oh, I know this is the right thing. And so I feel impatient because I want to get going. When you have that instinct, and obviously, you know, we're talking about one part of your life, we'll talk through the rest of your journey. When you have that feeling, is your process to go into risk-taking mode or is your process to go into kind of a methodical research mode? Definitely the former. I tend to dive into things and then figure them out. I'm not a a super analytical, methodical person when it comes to these things. So let's talk about when you decide that you are going to go the journalism route. Mm -hmm. And how did you get your job at The Times? After I left Europe, I moved back into my mom's house in the woods in Pennsylvania and wrote my book. Exactly what I'm sure you wanted to do after living <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, so yeah, that's it was exactly what I wanted to be doing, uh, moving in and being very isolated and scared. And I actually had a boyfriend in L.A. at the time. So, I, you know, I was freelancing. I was finishing my book, but I was also realizing, like, if I want to become a freelance food writer, being in the woods in Pennsylvania is not going to help that happen. So I decided I was going to move to L.A. because I felt like being in an urban environment is the right thing to do. And so I made plans to, to move. And I figured I would just, you know, pound the pavement there. And four days before I left, I got a, a message on my answering machine, an editor at the New York Times saying they wanted to talk to me. The return number was a uh, Florida area code. And so I was very confused and kind of didn't take it super seriously because I hadn't been, you know, pitching the times. And um, we returned the call, and I explained that I was moving to L.A. And he was like, well, can you just come to New York, like, before you leave? I went to New York and met him in Grand Central Station and had lunch, and it was lovely. And I was super nervous and sweating bullets, but I also didn't expect anything to come of it. So I just moved. I got a call eventually saying, like, you know, we want you to come and meet the executive editor of the paper, who was Joe Lellyveld at the time. And at that point, I realized, like, well, Somebody like Joe Lelyveld isn't going to spend time with me unless they're probably going to offer me the job. And so I decided to take the free flight home as my, uh, I packed up and then I packed up all my other belongings and boxes and said, if I get the job, can you, to my boyfriend, can you ship these back to me? He must um, have been thrilled with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was not. Um, but it all worked out. You've written, you know, 
after leaving the Times that it was hard for you to at times to navigate being there and being a really instinct-driven person who had clear direction and then also being just part of a, a big corporate company and kind of just the realities of, you know, we all know every corporate company has red tape and there's just a lot of layers there. Just talk to us a little bit about how you were able to and where you struggled to kind of balance your natural personality and instincts within a corporate environment. The part that worked well was just as a reporter and feature writer, being willing to you know work really hard and kind of do new things and and write a lot and you know not be unafraid to ask questions. I mean that that serves you well, right? And so I feel like on one hand, some of my sort of natural inclinations were sort of a perfect fit for the times. I think over time, though, I recognized that I was part of this large, revered institution, and that comes with a lot of unspoken rules. And I just felt confined by it. And I also... Is there uh, an example when you think about that that comes to mind? An editor at the magazine uh, asked me out to lunch and said, you know, we want to really completely redo the food coverage. You know, would, would you be open to writing a column and you have any ideas? And I had this idea for writing something that was like more connected to my personal life, very blog-like. And uh, she loved it, but there was no way I wanted to tell my editor that I had had this conversation because there's just institutionally, if you have a devoted role for the newspaper, you're, you're not supposed to be writing for the magazine. I mean, right. this is back then. I, right, I think right. things have vastly changed. and uh, But I really wanted to do it because I thought it was a good idea. Like, again, instinctively, I knew it was a good idea. Yeah. And... I wanted to make it happen, and I didn't want the sort of constraints of the institution to get in the way. In yeah. the way, and it was really stressful because I had a good relationship with my boss at the time, and I understood the things that she needed to get done. And yet, I felt like the time should be doing new things and experimenting and really speaking to my generation of readers. I felt like I had to kind of sneak around the yeah. the yeah. the structures. And I know what that doesn't feel good. And it just I always felt like I was getting into trouble. And um, and I also didn't want to feel infantilized in that way. I felt like, you know, I have good ideas. I mean not all of them, mm -hmm. certainly, but I wanted to be in an environment where that was encouraged and nurtured. And I totally get why it wasn't at the time, but it wasn't a good fit for me. And it just took me sort of too long to figure that out. You know, in corporate culture, like, there are a lot of politics. And it was this was new to me. You know, I came definitely from a straight-talking family. And so I was getting myself into trouble, I think, by just being very straightforward and candid and not careful and not, you know, thinking through all the relationships that I should be building in order to gain consensus for uh, what I wanted to get done or what I thought. I mean, on that front, it was a big fail for me. But you meet Meryl, yeah. who becomes your co-founder for mm -hmm. Food 52. What was the initial idea? What was the white space you saw? The white space was that, you know, as journalists covering the space and seeing actually this huge sea change in our culture was happening where food was no longer this sort of niche interest or something. For a long time, Americans, it was not acceptable to be like super excited about food. It was like... Like foodies weren't a thing. Foodies were not a thing. It was actually kind of gradual, but gaining more and more steam. And we could see this, that it wasn't just that it was mainstream. It was like it was changing the way people identified themselves, the way they lived their lives, the decisions they made around where they lived, how they designed their homes, how they traveled, what they did when they traveled, as well as how they cooked and, um, you know, what kind of food they were buying and what they wanted to know about that food. I don't know if we would have articulated it as crisply then, but again, a lot of these things are these gut feelings or 
senses about things that are happening and how you want to respond. And we felt like there was an opportunity to create a very different kind of company that served people who cared about food in a much more comprehensive way. You know, another thing that was happening in media that I think we were probably strongly affected by was media was moving from being a broadcast at its audience relationship to a much more kind of interactive relationship with the audience. And we felt like there was an opportunity in food where things are inherently social to really bring this community-driven element into a company that was creating content. Clearly, it was a great idea. Uh-huh. To get it off the ground, you and Meryl decided not to take a salary. That's correct. Yeah. We know what that's like. Was there a breaking point for you guys? Was there a time when you were like, I don't know if this is going to work? It, it was less about our feelings of could it work, whether or not it could work. It was whether or not we could get the funding to keep going. So what we did was we bootstrapped the company with a book deal. And you, you get signed a book deal, you get a book advance that helps, it basically funds you while you write the book. Instead of using it for that purpose, we used that money to build our site, you know, pay the design company we worked with, pay our, you know, part-time engineer and fund the functioning of the company for the first 18 months. We felt like that would give us time to build a proof of concept, also get the materials for the book in, in process, which was through the site. And we would then eventually raise a seed round. And so once we started down that path, you know, we had some traction, but we just couldn't get it closed. And, you know, we reached a point of, I actually remember we crying over uh, pizza at Roberta's, which, you know, good pizza. <laughs> not a bad place to cry. It yeah. seems fitting, um, the food yeah. theme, like <laughs> tears, but good pizza. It was really good pizza. And uh, maybe that it fueled us to keep us going. I just, you know, I think that we were just feeling like if we don't get a seed funding, and we'd already, you know, lent money, our own, you know, personal money to the company as well. It was hard to see the road ahead. What were we going to do? And it's funny because I think a lot of these inflection points are right at the beginning of of a real shift. And it was just weeks after that, that critical mass of investors said yes, and we were able to get our seed round closed. One of the things I remember when we started the skim was we've talked a lot about we struggled to raise money in the beginning. And, and very similar to you, we had faith in the product. We didn't have faith that the business would get funded. Mm-hmm. And we have a mutual friend in business, you and you guys and us, and it was our lawyer. And ah. he said, you really have to talk to Meryl and Amanda because they also don't have a technical co-founder. And the criticism that they're getting from investors or had gotten at that time from investors was, well, they're too similar. What's the difference in skill set? And a lot of the time, especially when we were out on the West Coast and and kind of pitching in Silicon Valley, was, you know, that we were too similar and that we didn't have that technical co-founder. And I'm fascinated because we loved your story so much and that kind of gave us hope in those early days. How did you respond to that criticism? And when people come to you for advice now about having a co-founder, what is your advice about what you need out of a co-founder? So just to answer the first part, so what we did was we went out and got not a co-founder, but we brought on essentially a, a CTO. And this lovely person who was incredibly talented, very experienced in the space, but way too senior for what we needed at the time. And he worked with us for about six months. We we closed the round. And then essentially we all sat down and we were like, this isn't, you know, yeah. like, he, he, you know, he was bored. And <laughs> uh, and we, you know, we could just, we could see it just, it wasn't the right decision, you know, but it may have been the part that helped us get that round closed, which, you know, I have to say, 
kind of annoys me. I think as a founder, you got to get stuff done. And you don't, and it's not always perfect, and you do have to make compromises. Like he would have been a much better hire at the stage that we're at now, ten years later. Yeah. <laughs> And so in terms of what you look for in a co-founder, trust is, I think, the biggest thing. How important, because we have our own thoughts around this, but I'm just curious from your perspective, how important is it to find somebody with complementary skills, a different skill set? How do you give people advice around that? I mean, I think that if you're being extremely tactical, you go and you look for that person who has complementary skill set. But again, I, I come back to finding somebody who has a different skill set that's complementary to yours who you get along with, who you share a vision with, who you also trust. That's a lot of boxes to check. I think when, you know, push comes to shove in the sort of day-to-day of running your company and growing your company, and I'm guessing you guys are going to agree, those tough situations, the skill set doesn't matter. It's the trust in the relationship. Agree, agree. (laughs) Yeah. And, And, I mean, we've all seen you know, so many of these startups that you read about in TechCrunch or wherever, they have that that sort of perfect resume. They all, there's the NBA and there's, you know, former Facebook, you know, lead engineer. I mean, they obviously probably did have an amazing skilled team, but companies are more complex than that. And and you have to have a unified vision. You have to trust each other and you have to be able to be flexible and work through things. Ultimately, if your company is successful, you're hiring people who do all the things that you do over time <laughs> because you have yeah. to. So I think it's really it's it's really about the relationship of the co-founders. Do you still consider Food 52 a startup? Not really. In the fall of 2019, the Chernin Group purchased a majority stake in Food 52 for a very nice sum. Congratulations. I'm curious. You, I am sure, have the next generation of an Amanda or a Merrill on your team. This is their New York Times moment where they took the job of a lifetime and they're figuring out their career path. How would you advise that person to navigate what is no longer maybe a startup, but is now a more mature company? What would you say to that person today and knowing where you were in your career and in your mindset back when you were at the Times? It hasn't actually changed that much. Yes, we have more process. We have more people. But I feel like my job is to push against that and to make sure that we're constantly evolving and innovating and pushing ourselves to. And there are a lot of expectations around process and ease and comfort. And, you know, people want to rinse and repeat. It's human nature. I I get it. But I think to be a company in a creative space, which is what we are, I think you have to constantly be pushing yourself to do things different. So I would actually encourage that person to challenge me, to challenge Meryl, challenge those around them and to push for things that they have strong convictions about that we should be doing. I don't think it actually has to be that way in big corporations, but I understand why it is. One of the things that we've admired so much about what you've done is how you've tapped into community Mm -hmm. to really fuel what the company has become. And we're a company that has prided ourselves on also developing a really loyal following. And I think what you've done is remarkable and how you've tapped into a community to actually help launch your own product line called 5.2, which is terrific for those of you who have not tried it. I'm really curious how you tapped into taking what could be, I would certainly say it's a risk. Um, You didn't know how that was going to go when you decided to go down that direction. How did you choose to take that risk and also kind of maintain what was already successful? So, We knew we wanted to do our own product line, and one of the frustrations that we had been facing with our 
e-commerce business was that we felt like there was this community of shoppers and people who were kind of super fans of of what we were selling, but they were not as visible and they didn't have as much of a an apparent voice. And we had been struggling to figure out a way to bring the sense of community into this part of our business, this growing part of our business. And so it was really this confluence of like, we wanted to do our own product line. We knew that there was this other problem to solve and it just became apparent that, hey, this is a really great opportunity to bring them in from the beginning. Oh, and also another thing that we'd have observed is that in this space, people have no idea why a pan is made with certain materials or why certain shapes have become the standard. And then also if we could give people a chance to weigh in, we were making a bet. We didn't know what they were going to tell us, but we were making a bet that they would tell us things that would have an impact on the design of the products in a meaningful way and that might surprise us. Our community has always surprised us. So we had that history to rely on. Did we know that they were going to be able to give us very specific detailed notes on what they wanted in a cutting board? No. That is what came and out of truly it. Truly the it, community like created the product. Yes. They then they continue to yeah. and it's been this amazing process and it's been super fun. There were definitely people yeah. on our team who were nervous about it. And yeah. I, I understand. I think they've been incredibly energized by what we've seen because they see that like actually people living in their homes are incredible experts on the products that they use because they know what colors work for them, what materials work for them. They they know what they don't like because they're using these things every day. Now on to our last <clears> round, <throat> our lightning round. We ask you a question, you answer as fast as you can. What was your very first job? Mowing lawns and babysitting. Worst. And one I was good at and one I was not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Worst job. Being a lifeguard. A lot of responsibility. So, well, no, a lot of responsibility. <laughs> I wasn't a great swimmer. It was. That's what I was going to ask. Because you, know, you were and, bad at well, it? Well, and also you're in the sun all day. Did you ever have to rescue for somebody? Your health. No, I was oh. at a country club pool. Oh. I mean, it was not <laughs> real lifeguarding. And it's just like, it's so boring. It's completely such a bad decision for me. I always wanted me. to be I a lifeguard. I always wanted to lay out of this. Oh, no, no, um, don't. What is your favorite food? Bread and butter. What's your favorite restaurant? I don't have. I'm sorry. I can't answer that question. <laughs> like you don't have one or you I don't want so to play many. favorite? I have so okay. many. I mean, I've just had so many great If you could curate your what? last meal, tell me what's there. It probably wouldn't be a restaurant meal. Okay, it would be it would, it would. would be cured meats and olives and lots of beautiful cheeses and, and really great bread and definitely a Negroni. Not actually a lot of cooked food. It would be simple foods I really love. What is the last show that you streamed or binge watched? I don't watch TV. What's the last book you read? I'm reading a book called The Four Agreements. Oh, yeah. I've read it. Oh, you have? Yes. I'm on the third. Have you um, applied this to your life? In my mind, I have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, still, I'm still working on it. <laughs> what is your favorite 5G product? Our wooden spoons. I need new wooden spoons. Do I need they're, to? I haven't tried those yet. They're really okay. great. They're hand-carved. They're made of teak which is a boat building Okay, material. I'm buying them today. Okay. They're really great. Amanda, congratulations on everything. Thank you so much for being here today. We're Thank huge fans. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 